Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-347, getting close to 350, of the Run Run Live podcast. Today, we are going to reconnect with our old friend, Mike, the Dirt Dog, who has been doing a lot of useful work around mindfulness in his life, and with his students, and in his community. And I chat with him about some practical ways that we can use mindfulness in our lives in some basic, easy ways to implement it. In section one, I'm going to zoom in on how meditation or mindfulness can help amateur athletes. In section two, I'm going to do a quick summary of how a 30-day project works and how you can use them to get some traction in your life. Because as I write this, I am wrapping up my latest 30-day plan. And I tend to, this is different than the Soviet five-year plan, my 30-year plan. (laughs) No, 30-day plan. I tend to try to do a bunch of things in parallel when I do my 30-day projects. And for this one, I was trying to get up early, clean up my nutrition, avoid alcohol, and work on my next project. And it went very well, except for the last couple days when I was on vacation. And that always causes some hiccups in the process. But I managed to keep the damage minimal while not being bad company. Up until that point, though, I had lost a bunch of weight and had met all my goals and felt fantastic. I didn't get as much work done on my book project as I would have liked, but it was... All in all, a very good month for me, and I was particularly pleased because I took a two-week break from running at the same time I took on the 30-day project, because I kicked this project off on August 1st, the day after my trail marathon, and my Achilles was hurting, so coach gave me a week off. And after a week, I ran on it once, and it just felt awful. I ended up walking back from that run. And that was that run was like day seven or eight of my 30-day project. And as I will explain later, that is when the project sucks the most. I was in a bad place with no energy. And my runs have been awful all summer. I just felt sick, had no energy, and was hating my, my workouts. 
And I got them done, but it was a struggle. I was sort of uh, not enjoying it. And that's one of the reasons I decided to put my foot down and use a 30-day project to clean up. And I decided to clean up my nutrition and with Rachel's help, rebuild my healthy biome. And after the day seven run debacle, coach smelled overtraining and gave me another week off. Not off, but off from running. And that's when I started to turn the corner. About 14 days in, he finally gave me the green light again and told me to do an easy hour and 15 minute run. And in this point, I was lighter, a good five to eight pounds lighter and healthier and well-rested. And I decided to go out at night after work. The night was cool, around 60, and the humidity had let up. And I left everything at home, just wore a pair of racing shorts, no phone, no bottle, no shirt, just my Garmin and the heart strap. And oh my God, I felt weightless. I couldn't control myself. I was literally flying. And I didn't even start to feel any tiredness until that last long climb up to my house. And Coach was a bit peeved when I posted my easy run. It turned out to be an eight-plus-mile marathon-paced tempo run. But really, sometimes you just can't help yourself. I felt fantastic. And the other thing I'm noticing is that my heart rate is staying down. It's behaving nicely, just the way I would have expected it to, that I was having, but I was having trouble with that earlier in the summer. My Achilles is still a little sore, but I'm working it. And my runs since then have been fairly fabulous. Plus, since I'm getting up early, anyhow, I can knock them out in the morning without much suffering. It's all good. The wave is cresting again. I'm going to see if I can keep the nutrition going until October. In 30 days, I got down to 170 pounds even, which is very light for me. I usually race around 185, 180 to 185. And I think with a little focus, I could get under 170. And I haven't been there, well, ever. (laughs) And I'm curious to see what that would do for my racing. And by the way, when I say clean nutrition, I mean eating 98, 99% healthy, whole food, nothing packaged, lots of fruits and veggies and nuts, an occasional hit of fish or meat if I feel like I'm not getting enough calories. And I've cut out the fried food, the bread, most dairy, and as much sugar as I could find on the food labels, although sometimes the bastard sneaks some by me. And when I set up the project with Rachel, I told her my focus was not to lose weight, but to get healthy, to feel better. But as usual, once you start focusing on eating clean and healthy, the weight just comes off naturally. It's not due to a lack of calories per se, just a different mix. And remember, the first two weeks of this, I wasn't even running, and I still maintained or lost just by eating healthy. And there's a couple things I'm doing slightly different this time around. First, I'm trying to get enough healthy fats, and I include olive oil in my salads. I always have and other meals as sort of a condiment, and I mix a spoonful of coconut oil into my oatmeal in the morning because apparently coconut oil is the new superfood. And second, we've been experimenting with lots of probiotic foods like kimchi and sauerkraut and pickles and organic honey and homemade fermented beet juice. And this time of year, I'm getting fresh chard and cukes from my garden too, and they come in with some helpful 
organism riding along from the great outdoors. You can get useful critters from any of the fresh, fresh from field produce available this time of year. Uh, check your labels to find certified organic or live culture foods. And to be clear, though, I don't mean the well-known, as seen on TV, yogurts and other probiotic-labeled dairy products, which, in my humble opinion, are just another packaged food ploy to stuff more dairy and sugar down your throat. I don't know if it's good or bad, but my innards are a lot happier now after a month or so of working in the probiotic healthy food into my life. And it's amazing how large a change you can make in a short amount of time with a little bit of focus. And remember, the Run, Run, Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. We do this by offering a membership option where members get access to exclusive members-only audio. And last week, I uploaded two, count them, two book reviews. One for the Neil Stevenson Seven Eves sci-fi tome and another for Moonwalking with Einstein, a treatise on memory techniques. And you can find that in the show notes and on runrunlib.com if you'd like to help me out. I was reading the New York Times in the airport on the way back from vacation this week, and there was an article in there about Lucy, the famous Australopithecine. And they found Lucy's fossilized bones in Kenya in 1974. And it really kicked off the study and understanding of all the different branches of the hominid family tree since. Lucy was a small, juvenile, female Australopithecine that lived in the forested grasslands of Africa a few million years ago. And they weren't humans in the sense that we think of Homo sapiens, the thinking ape. They were a side branch or a transitional form of hominid that seems to have been moving out of the trees to walk upright on the ground. And according to the news, it seems Lucy's two million plus year old fossilized bones were making a tour of the U.S. And some scientists took the opportunity to create a thorough CAT scan of them. In this way, they could get detailed digital images that they could analyze without having to have the bones themselves. One of the things that they discovered is a number of compression fractures. And these are the type of fractures you get when you hit something hard, like a car accident or falling out from a great height. And they postulate that poor little Lucy met her demise by falling out of a tree. Now I question these conclusions. I don't think anything so mundane happened. I see the forensic evidence, and I think Lucy was definitely into extreme sports. She probably was wingsuit flying off a ridge from Mount Kilimanjaro or paragliding over the volcanoes, but maybe she was caught in a sudden gust of wind or was rattled by an ill-timed tremor from imbibing too much Red Bull. Without fully developed opposable thumbs, she couldn't hang on and she crashed. Now, I'm no scientist, but I have watched many episodes of CSI Las Vegas, and that's where the data leads me. It was like an Australopithecine version of Point Break, like they had some mad dog skills and liked to live on the edge, those Australopithecines. Live fast, die young, leave a fossilized pile of bone fragments. That was their motto. On with the show.
It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Meditation in sport. Mindfulness is all the rage right now. Everyone is talking about it. Apparently everyone is doing it in one form or another. It is reported that the vast majority of successful people, however you define that, have a mindfulness or a meditation practice. Top-level athletes have mindfulness practices and coaches for this as well. We are more and more starting to realize how much of competing at a high level is truly mental. Athletes now put as much work into their heads as they do into their bodies. And the science is starting to support the practice. We are able to see and measure changes in the brain due to the effect of consistent mental practice. If you are a run-of-the-mill amateur athlete, why do you care? Well, you care because mental practice has always been in the repertoire of successful athletes. Meditation and mindfulness practices can not only help you compete, but also help you deal with training and preparing. So first, I'm sure you're familiar with the age-old practice of visualization. The most common practice is to visualize how you want your race to go. With visualization, you can presage and burn in the decisions and outcomes you're looking for. It's like a mental walkthrough of the main event. And how does that work in a meditation practice? Well, visualization becomes much more effective when you have a mind that is receptive and prepared for it. This means that if you do your affirmations and visualizations right after you meditate, they'll stick better. Your mind is freshly tilled ground at this point, and anything you put in there will flourish all the better because of it. This is, in all regards, mental practice. Even if it's not a race, you can use meditation to calm your mind so that your mind is receptive to anything you want to work on. Basically, what you are trying to do is not so much focus your mind, but declutter it to make room for useful and effective thinking. When you combine the physical effort of training with the mental clarity of mindfulness, you can have breakthroughs on whatever thorny issues have been rattling around in your head. Who among us hasn't had a light go off in the middle of a run where the answer comes to us and it all becomes so clear? Who among us has not gone for a run angry and felt that tension resolve itself? It is the synergy of the mind-body connection that allows us to leverage this mental practice. There is some science that you can use mindfulness to influence physical aspects of your body as well. You can visualize your muscles contracting, your heart pumping, or my favorite, your mitochondria burning fat. Visualize the healing or the fat burning or whatever process you want to happen in your body. And with mindfulness, you can get better at practicing this mind over matter. For you competitive athletes who want to squeeze better performances and better results out of your races, mindfulness can help. By practicing mindfulness, you will prepare your mind to deal with challenges. Through practice, you can train your mind not to have negative thoughts 
and race performance anxiety. You can mitigate the mental stresses of performance, which for many runners are worse than the physical stress of the event. A good mental practice will allow you to transcend the discomfort of the race. You will be able to bear more comfort longer. If you are a marathoner, you know what I mean. It will also make you less likely to panic when something goes sideways in an event. It can eliminate those stress triggers, allow you to stay in a good place and roll with the changes. It has been shown that consistent meditation reduces stress. That's a great thing for athletes because stress physically manifests as inflammation in the body. And that's right. By reducing or eliminating stress, you allow your body to heal faster and get better performances out of your training. Meditation has also been shown to help you with your sleep. If you have trouble falling asleep or getting your mind to quiet down so you can get good rest, meditation can fix that. The same mind-calming techniques used in meditation can be used to clear your mind and let you sleep. Better sleep means better recovery and better training. Mindfulness could be your secret weapon. It helps with fear and stress. It helps you deal with pain and suffer better longer. It improves your sleep patterns. It can help you train better, recover faster, race better. It can make you calmer and happier in your life. And it makes you more flexible to changes and challenges. And to top it all off, it helps you find the zone. A peaceful mind is more open to slipping into that wonderful place where your mind goes quiet and you transcend the workout or the race. Time slows down and the effort dissolves into a sort of performance euphoria. The zone, runner's high. Great, sounds good, you say. I'll take two. Wait, what's the catch? The catch is the same as with every other practice. If you want to reap the benefits of mindfulness, you have to practice it. Like any other training, it takes some consistency of practice to be effective. This means setting aside 5 or 10 or 20 minutes to practice mindfulness in your day. There are plenty of YouTube videos and audio programs and apps you can use to guide you if you need help. Regardless of the coaching you get, the practice itself is very simple. You sit comfortably. You slowly scan your body with your mind, becoming aware of the present, the now. You then focus on your breathing, or more specifically, your breath in your body. And when you do this, your monkey mind will kick into full gear and start throwing thoughts at you a mile a minute. It's okay. Everyone's mind does this. You simply acknowledge the thought, put it aside, and return your focus to the breath in the body. That's it. It's simple, but it takes practice. Now, you can transfer this practice to your workouts. As you are running, simply scan your body from the inside, one bit at a time. Feel how your body feels right now. And then become aware of your heartbeat in your body. Then become aware of your breath in your body. Just stay with the breath and let your mind calm. Let the mental chatter fall away and run with your breath. If it's a hard workout or race, you can become an observer of yourself. In your mind, step outside of yourself and dispassionately observe what's going on. Move from being the doer to the observer. 
Whenever you feel any negative thoughts or feelings or other patterns coming, just let them go like you would any other chatter. It is neither good nor bad. It just is. Refocus on the breath and smile. Practice being grateful for whatever it is that your workout is giving you. Accept the gift. Practicing mindfulness in whatever form is appropriate to you is a great tool to help you train, compete, and just to help you live happier in general. What we tightly wrapped competitive types struggle with is this practice is not results focused. There's no way to win at mindfulness. It's a practice that will surprise you by showing up when you need it. There's a wonderful opportunity for the athlete to use mindfulness to enhance the mind-body connection and the understanding of your machine. It's not a sharp tool, but it is a powerful tool that expresses itself by manifesting benefits over time. So why not experiment for, say, 30 days with making mindfulness part of your daily practice? And now for today's featured interview. Mike, Dirt Dog, how are you? Good, Chris. I think we might have talked at some point in the old days of Run Run Live. Did I interview you like way back when when I was doing weekly shows and talking to my dog and that kind of stuff? We might have back in the day. I know we've shared a pint or two. Yeah, so you came up for Boston with your wife. I remember that. Yeah, and then you were out here in Michigan one day, I think, with Eddie and Kevin. I think we had a beer once. That's right. Kevin Green. Yep. Back in the old days of Twitter. You know, I'm starting to think of that as a golden age of... uh, (laughs) Of the running community back in, what was that, 2006, 2007, 2008? Yeah, something like that. It's been a while. It's crazy how fast the cultural wheel turns these days. So, yeah, I want to talk to you about mindfulness. Do we dare call it meditation? Because doesn't that scare people away? I think even mindfulness scares people away. So what do we call it? I call it both, mindfulness and meditation. Although everything kind of gets blurred around social media and everything around these days, and it sounds all woo-woo-y. But I've tried to distill it and make it as simple as possible, given the population that I work with and serve on a daily basis. This is part of your life that you haven't shared that much. I mean, you started to cross over a little bit now, but give us the 200 words on your day job and, frankly, why that's so challenging. So for those of you that are listening, I guess Dirt Dog is a running podcast that I started probably seven or eight years ago and still have that going. But I'm a father. I've got two kids. I'm a husband. And I'm also a high school principal. And and not in the high school principal that you normally think of. I serve special ed students who are highly at risk, emotionally impaired. I work at a center program. So I deal with lots of mental health, poverty, trauma, abuse, all of that under the sun. So to balance that out, like you heard Chris say, I've run marathons, I've run ultras, and also have become a yoga instructor, something that I brought to my students this past year and also started teaching mindfulness and meditation as a way to cope with the stress of our daily lives. It's funny how with the social media and the the constant march of electronics, how much of our lives that used to be mindful are now taken up with some sort of crossover to the electronic world, right? Oh, yeah. Even if you wanted to do meditation now, there's apps for that. So it's almost like anything that you want to do, you can do, but you have to have your smartphone attached to you, which is an interesting thing because my kids are 9 and 12, and it's like they 
they are almost proficient with these little slabs of glass as I am. And here I am 40 years down the road. Yeah. I can remember we used to go running all the time and just go running. And now it's, you know, unless I have my earphones in and I'm digesting three or four podcasts at 1.5 or 2x speed, it's almost like another work session for me now. And I notice I don't get the kind of creativity out of my runs that I used to because I'm dual tasking. It's funny. This morning, my Garmin was dead. So I actually took my Border Collie out. And the only thing I had was my road ID. And I can't tell you the last time that I was completely unplugged from anything. I normally don't run with my phone, but Garmin or anything, I can't tell you the last time that I ran without anything. It was a naked feeling. It was odd. But if you think about it nowadays, too, how often if you don't have your smartphone with you or something that uh, you get these phantom feelings like it's going off or something, we are always plugged in. We're always hyper-connected. And that's why over the past year and a half, essentially, as I started to start teaching some yoga and mindfulness for my students, started to try and really distill it and make it very clear and concise. Teenagers have a way of, if you're going to hold their attention, even for adults, you have to make things very clear and concise and manageable for them to be able to take it in because our attention spans now are so short. Yeah, it's interesting. Your interactions with these, call them troubled or whatever, but they are young minds, young brains that have been influenced uh, probably not in a positive way all their lives. And you're trying to get them to do what exactly? Well, simply to start to take stock of who they are in the moment and to be able to, Stephen Covey always talks about the whatever is happening, the stimulus, and then the response. And so often in most of our lives, we go from stimulus to response, and we never stop to think about what we're going to do. We're never present and in the moment. So for a lot of my students, they just have a straight beeline from whatever's happening to their reaction. And oftentimes it can be violent to themselves or it can be it to others. And one of the things that I've learned over my meditation and yoga practice over the last several years is being able to, in the moment, see where I'm at and can I make a better decision? Can I show up and be present? And really with them, it's starting with one simple thing at a time. And that simple thing is what? I go back to this is just starting with noticing one breath. Can you consciously, during the time of our lives, you know, they talk about you can go for without food for like 30 days. You can go without food for about three weeks. You can't go without your breath for about three minutes. Otherwise, there's probably some permanent damage that's going to happen. But in between that time, how often are we consciously noticing our breath and the breath has a really powerful way of reacting all throughout the body and it starts in your brain on how to calm your nervous system down calm your body down slow down your heart rate and it starts with just one thing i can't remember who the guy is but he wrote some book about like tiny habits can you do one thing a day to start to build that habit and with students when you see People saying, well, you need to meditate for two times a day, 20 minutes a day. Well, that's 40 minutes. Yeah. Can you start with one and what do you notice? And even when I started teaching it with my students, I had a pilot group. I took uh, six of the highest flyers in my building, the kids who were the most violent, the most dangerous. They weren't in any of the same classes together. And I have a conference room and I put them all together and I said, look, nobody wants you all in the same class together. You guys all struggle mightily. 
but I'm willing to take this on and you guys are my pilot project. And we're going to start with one simple practice. And we rolled that out and it was amazing over the course of the time I did this with those guys, I would have them come in and ask to come and sit in my office and meditate in a corner that I had. I have all my yoga mats in here and I would have a couple of them come in and sit and building from one breath up to, we got up to almost 10 minute sessions to learn to simply sit, focus on their breath, get themselves in a better place so they could make a better decision, go on with their day. Yeah. So it's training like anything else. So it's not what happens while you're doing it. It's how it conditions your mind for that day mm-hmm. or for, for that period, right? Right. But what you're doing, you're saying, what's the easiest way in? What's the leverage? What's the wedge to get in there? And it's sitting for one breath or one minute. Right. And it's like low cost of entry, right? What's going to be the cheapest way for you to get in? What's going to show it results almost immediately? And so I would take the students into just sitting there and we would just practice a sitting straight up, eyes closed, taking one big inhale through the nose and exhaling it through the mouth. And just being that mindful and saying, what did you notice? Could be a pretty powerful springboard onto the next thing. And we started with talking about how your brain processes information. What does that look like? What it does to your body? How can you use a temperature gauge? to see where you're at. And we even had an acronym that we used that I could go around to them in the building if I noticed them getting agitated or something. And it was called PEER. It was P-I-E-R. And it was pause, inhale, exhale, repeat. And they had little index cards that we laminated with the message on there that I said, you know, refer back to that. When you're getting into the moment or you're feeling that, can you use your PEER? And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't. But what I'm offering is, another tool, like you said, something that they can pull out of their toolbox and use. And the interesting thing was, is after I did that with my students, and I started talking about it along with the yoga that I was teaching, I've had other buildings and stuff reach out where now I'm talking to adults about it too, because we're stressed, right? We're always going and running and doing stuff too. And it's amazing to me how many people don't know even how to check into themselves and do that. Well, I think it's demystifying it is a great way to do it and mystify is the right word because it's the root of mysticism whereas i think people harken back to that sort of late 60s early 70s eastern philosophy period and it's all the woo-woo stuff you don't have to believe in anything it's just about quieting your mind and being in the moment and what that does if you look at science what it does is it rewires your brain yes and it makes you better at coping and better at executing and all the things you're trying to do, it's a good investment. Right. And when I start to share with adults that 75 to 90 percent of doctor's visits, really at the core of it, stress related. And really the stress is generated from how your body interprets the environment around you and how do you react. And when you can start to build those and look at it and say, okay, this is a stressful thing that's going on in my body and I'm either reacting to it emotionally, physically, behaviorally. I know what my brain is doing. And when that next event comes up, how do I do that? Can I take one breath? Can I start to build mindful practice? Can I use some exercise, which is called meditation to build that awareness? I think it demystifies. It takes the woo-woo-wee out of it, right? Because in a public school, you don't want to be touching anything that's can be tied to religion when I'm saying this is what I'm offering and this is how it ties into science. 
and it's a very simple approach. Anybody can do it. Yeah, and I think if you just just for the people who are listening here who might be curious, the mechanics of this are you find some place quiet, some place without a lot of distractions. Typically, early in the morning is when I'll find myself doing this before my day gets started, and you sit. And close your eyes and you focus on your breath, right? You feel where the breath is in your body. You feel it coming through your nostrils, into your lungs, right? And you focus on that breath and try to clear all the other thoughts out of your mind. Now, what happens to most people is when you do that, you're, as you say, and a lot of people say, the monkey mind, or some people call it the wild stallions, they take over and your thoughts race and you say, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do that. And eight times out of ten, that's what my sessions are like because I have a really active mind. But that's okay. You should still do it. Right. And it's like going for a run. Not all runs are going to be great. Some of them are just going to just be what the other. Other days, you're going to fly. And you're right, too. That, that monkey mind, when you listen to the internal chatter, and you think people are being, when you hear people talking about other people or that other people are being mean, if you sit and listen and your monkey mind is going, I think oftentimes the worst conversations you will hear are what's in your own mind. And the purpose of you sitting is to just notice those thoughts, not pay any attention to them. Say, I know that you're there and just let it move on. And we always talk to my students and to adults when I do this is go back to your breath. So you could get one great breath in and then your monkey mind takes over. Okay, great. Go back to the breath. And what you'll find is that as you start to develop a practice and as you start to maintain consistency, is that it'll trickle over into your daily life and you'll start to become a little bit more aware of as a stressor pops up, you'll say, okay, I noticed that. Am I in the present moment? How do I make a better decision instead of everything just being so quick to react, which is what a lot of my students do. And the fact that they're high schoolers, they're at risk, the fact that your brain doesn't really stop growing until you're 25, it's a hard, hard time. And what I'm trying to offer it through teaching them yoga, teaching this mindfulness and meditation are things that they can use in school, out of school, in their daily life, and really simply build things one thing at a time. And you're teaching the yoga as an extension of the mindfulness, right? Yeah. Not as an exercise, although it's good for that as well. Yeah, it's, it's a standalone. I started teaching it last year on Friday afternoons, and it was a gamble because I started taking yoga teacher training. I just wanted to evolve my practice. And one of the things I learned and really took to heart was taking what I have to offer and taking it off the mat. So I thought, hey, we're going to try this out. It had been something I had been interested in for a long time. Started offering it on Friday afternoons for my students. And it was pretty cool. Averaged probably 10 kids a a week. I had like almost 40% of my building take a class throughout the year. And what was cool is there were kids that you never would have thought would have showed up to try it out would show up every week. And it was pretty awesome because it's something that I think everybody should have access to. And it's something that is can be considered woo-woo-y and, and can get priced out of people, which my students often could get priced out of. And there's really not a huge market for teaching it to teens. So I'm really excited about it. So, I mean, give us some statistics on the student population here. You said that almost a majority of these folks are headed for something bad. of my kids are special ed and and under the the legislative here where I teach and serve, it's considered emotionally impaired. Some are behavioral disordered. So like I said, kids that have a lot of mental illness, trauma, abuse, poverty, some kids, a good 
portion of them are involved with the juvenile justice system. And essentially, they've, they've been referred to us by their local school districts that we've tried everything. You're kind of like the last hope. And one of the things around the country is that funding has been cut for a lot of social services. So psychiatric hospitals and facilities and stuff are just being cut. There's nowhere for these kids to go. And instead of dropping out, they live where I live and they have the opportunity. We work with them. And most of my students go on to earn a high school diploma. We work to try and either get them a job, enrolled in a community college. But, you know, you're always going to have that segment of the population that no matter what you do, all the effort, they still may backslide. So given that, do you have any success stories or positive feedback from these efforts you've been making? Well, yeah. I mean, for one, I had an article printed in a professional journal about teaching yoga to this population, the mindfulness piece. It seems to be it's part of a lot of popular culture. Uh, It seems to be making some inroads into schools and such. And so when people have started to hear it, it's piqued their interest for not only themselves because of the stress of working with students and working in education and just general life that I get the opportunity now to go out and start talking to some people about that as a practice. I'm working with a homeless shelter right now to talk about bringing it to them and all from the point of service. Uh, Yeah. Do you have any direct feedback from your clients, as it were? My students? Yeah. 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 Oh, it was interesting. Like I said, I've had kids come in and talk to me and ask to use the meditation piece. I've had parents who have come and said, hey, I hear that my kid is doing yoga and they've been really positive about it. They've been coming home a little bit more quiet and calm after the sessions. I've had kids who are going to fight during the lunchroom and they've both signed up for yoga. And I'm like, look, guys, you guys can either decide that you're going to take the wrong road or you both signed up for yoga in about an hour. And one kid was like, look, I need this shit, essentially. He's like, I signed up. I need this. I need to learn how to to relax. So look, we're not going to get into this fight and then show up an hour later and, and be going through the class. And so while it's not correlated with necessarily higher grades or less discipline referrals, because it's not something I tracked originally. I wanted to track how many kids actually took advantage of it. I know we're trending in the right direction. Again, it's one of those things. You have to start small. You have to simply offer and and see how it takes hold. And so it's pretty interesting now to hear some other people who come in and say, hey, I've been here. You've been offering yoga for your students. What does that look like? We're kind of maybe interested in in doing it for our students. It's a little bit different because I'm not contracting with anybody, right? Here I am, a high school principal, deciding that that's what I'm going to offer. I'm going to go and teach this for my kids, not bringing in something outside because I think I know my students best. I think I have something to offer. Yeah. And it's a dangerous road, Michael, because there's haters everywhere, right? <laughs> so especially the, the industry you work. And I think the toughest thing about yoga or meditation, especially for the population you're working with, and even for businessmen like myself, is that it is potentially seen as a sign of weakness, like everything else in mental health, right? Yeah, and there was a poster I ran across, and you can't fake authenticity. And I've been reading a lot lately in the last year or two, Brene Brown and Elizabeth Gilbert, and and the fact about just showing up and being authentic and admitting your mistakes, right? And as a 40-year-old man saying, hey, I made this mistake, that can be as a little bit of a shock to some people because they think that you are being weak. And I think it's more just from the fact that I'm really comfortable with where I am at and and having meditated and working on my own mindfulness and stuff and saying, nope, this is how I'm going to show up. This is who I am. And 
you can hate it, but this is what I have to offer. And, and as a service to you, you can either take it or leave it. I'm just going to continue to offer it. Yeah. And I think if we take that over into our other lives, right, into our working lives and the people who are listening, it's not a panacea, right? You're still going to show up. This happened to me last week. You show up and there's that one person who knows your triggers, right? <laughs> and as in the moment as you are, you're still going to have those habits. It's not a panacea. But um, it helps a little bit to, I guess I would say, lessen the impact of those people in your lives or those situations in your lives and helps you get over them faster. Right. right? Yeah, because when it all boils down to it, right, you simply get to choose. You always have a choice in how you react to a situation. And I think that's the drilling down into the mindfulness and the meditation is helping you to be able to make the choice. And are you clear and are you present in the moment so that you can make the right choice. You can choose to feel upset when people say something that you don't like. You can choose to feel happy in the yoga and the mindfulness and meditation are just things in the toolbox that I use and I'm trying to give to others can help them because not every day are you going to be perfect on the top of a mountain. Everything is hunky-dory because it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> Yeah, my Garmin was dead this morning. Like I told you, and I'm like, man, I was looking forward to this run. And then I'm like, okay, I haven't run naked, essentially without a watch. And I don't know how long. So it's where we're going to be. I had that happen to be this weekend, too, which is uh, I showed up Saturday for my long ride and picked up my Garmin. It was one of those things where the little prongs weren't aligned right or got unplugged at the USB port. And it was dead. It was low battery. And I started to go down that, oh, my God, stupid garment. But then I was like, I don't care. I'll just, I've been doing this for 40 years. I'll just look at my watch. Yeah, I didn't take anything today. It was nothing. I could still do math. I could figure it out. Yeah. So I'll tell you a funny story about math. I was buying something in Atlanta last week at the mall, and I went up to the counter. The thing I was buying was 30% off. And the lady said, I'll give you another 20% off with the courtesy card. And I go, so you know how much that is, thinking I, thinking I was asking a really simple question, and she looked like a deer in the headlights. Yeah, like 30 plus 20 is what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to put okay. you on the spot. Right. I just thought it was easy, as much as I try. So how does any of this mindfulness translate over into um, sports? I mean, we saw the Olympics go by, and I think that's a great demonstration of mindfulness right there on the big stage, right? Because oh, oh. that's the place where your monkey brain really gets the best of you. Oh, my God, yeah. Just watching the uh, marathon yesterday morning with uh, Galen Rupp and just always – it doesn't matter. Centrowitz winning – was at the 1,500, and Mo Farah winning the five and 10,000. I mean, all of that was great. So much pressure on all of those guys to achieve whatever position they thought they were going to get into into the Olympics. And how do you keep that from overriding you in the moment? What decision are you going to make? Mo Farah deciding to jump to the front towards the end of the 5,000-meter. Centrowitz – I can't believe that people – for are talking that it was the slowest Olympic 1500 meter in however many years. Who cares? He won, right? And Rupp hanging tough through some really terrible conditions. Even the U.S. women's uh, marathon, three women in the top 10 is outstanding. And how did they during that time when either they saw a medal slipping away or they saw a medal in their grasp, what was the conversation that they had been having with themselves? Not in the race, but in the training leading up to that, because even the guy who won the, the men's marathon, uh, Kipkaji, right, said it was all the training leading up to it. So that in the race, in that moment, you had the answer. You knew what you were going to do. But I think that's one of the things you can infer 
from watching these athletes is that they have really worked in a lot of mental training into their physical training, right? Mm -hmm. Because you just don't see people blowing up anymore. You know, it used to be you'd see people blow up on the big stage and just choke, but you just don't see that anymore. So I think they put as much effort into the mental training now. It's a known science. And that's really what we're talking about here with uh, mindfulness. Right. Didn't Yogi Berra say something about baseball in terms of like baseball is 90% mental? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it is all of that practice essentially off the field. So when you step on and just like for us, right, if your morning practice, like my morning practice is can I get myself into a position so that when the day starts rolling and things start coming at you from all sides, have you done that work to be able to handle those situations in a place where you are present and where you are right. able to make it. Yeah, and I was talking to uh, Matt Fitzgerald, and one of the things they discovered when they were looking into this is the people who visualized everything going well actually didn't do real well because when something started going poorly, they didn't know how to handle it, right? They sort of fell off the, off the moment. But the people who visualized all of it, even when something goes bad, how they were going to handle it, those are the people who did very well. They're able to bounce back from it in their uh, athletics. Right. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, I'll let you go. So tell you've written a book. I might, might call this a novella, maybe a, a pamphlet like they would in the old days or a uh, maybe make it sound sexy, a manifesto. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I wrote something. It's called uh, One Breath, How to Tame Your Monkey Mind to Live in the Moment. It's short. It's what, 20, 25 pages, some learning activities in the midst of it to try and help you deconstruct what stress looks like for you. How does your body react and really try to walk you through the process instead of saying, sit, inhale, exhale, now go out and do. Yeah. Okay. And uh, people can find that on Amazon, right? Yeah. Kindle store. Yep. Kindle store. Absolutely. All right. So send me the links and we'll put it in the show notes. All right. Got it, sir. You got any, what's your next event? You got all your event stumps this year, huh? Yeah, I, I 2016 race 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon, and an ultra all done. Honestly, I'm just waiting for my kids' soccer schedule to come out because I'd like to do another ultra too. I'm, I'm feeling the call to go back and go long and slow and just waiting to see when that happens to see when I can get into another event. And probably next year, I've done a 100-miler before. I've not finished a 100-miler, but I think I'd like to jump back in and, and do another one. Yeah, <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk about visualization, the first one that I finished, I had done all of that work. I had gone for the absolute, what's the worst thing that can happen, and all you got to do is just keep moving forward. So There's things for everyone. I don't have to do it to prove I can. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a bit of my own self-awareness there. I know I don't have to. <laughs> I'm okay with that. All right, man, we'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, Chris. Yep, bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Anatomy of a 30-day wellness project. How it goes. One of my favorite things to do to get things done is to launch 30-day projects. This allows you to grab a finite set of near-term goals and take a focused crack at them. The short time frame of the projects allow you to focus on some specific deliverable or behavior in a really easy to understand way. A 30-day project is also small enough to be almost risk-free. It's so much easier mentally to move forward with a small, rapid project than to bite off something long-term and big in scope. It's just more manageable. It allows you to produce meaningful results and then iterate. 
and I actually stole this idea from the software development gurus. It's a form of rapid development. What are some examples? When applied to your everyday life, what are things you can do in 30 days? Well, you can get up at 5 a.m. every day for 30 days. You can eat vegan for 30 days. You can write a blog post a day for 30 days. You can do a video post for 30 days. You can stop drinking or any bad habit for 30 days. You can call 50 prospects a day for 30 days. You can walk at lunch every day for 30 days. You can connect with 10 new professional contacts on LinkedIn every day for 30 days. You can meditate every morning for 30 days. You get the idea. The opportunities are nearly limitless. If there's a bad habit you want to break, a project you want to deliver, or a self-improvement goal you want to reach, or simply something you want to taste or experiment with, the 30-day project can get you there. Use a 30-day project to kick a bad habit. For the bad habit cessation projects, the 30-day format is easier because you're not saying, I'll never do this again. You're saying, hey, anyone can hold out for 30 days. And that bypasses a lot of the resistance. Essentially, it's a form of the one-day-at-a-time method that keeps the scope of change manageable, keeps you from getting overwhelmed. It's easier to execute socially as well because you're not changing your life. You're just doing a little experiment. You get the same social accountability with less emotional risk and investment. It gives you air support to declare your intentions. You might, for example, say to your significant other, my project for this month is to sort out our finances. And that takes the emotion out of it, but still creates a focus and a deadline. Using the 30-day project to get stuff done. What I like about 30-day projects is it allows me to focus on something I have, quote, been waiting to get around to, but haven't had the time. Things like that book you've been wanting to write or that specific improvement you've been looking to make to your website. I used this methodology to set up the membership option on my website that had been on my to-do list for literally five years, and I was able to knock it off in 30 days. Even if you don't complete the project in 30 days, you will make incredible concrete progress on it. You can write a lot of words in 30 days. You can write the first draft of a book easily in 30 days. You may discover that it can't be done, or that it's different than you thought, but that's great, too, because at least it's not moldering in idea purgatory anymore. Using the 30-day project for self-improvement initiatives. You can easily use the 30-day project for all your self-improvement initiatives, especially those that you are having trouble gaining traction on. What are some things you want to do more of? Commit to doing that thing every day for 30 days. Eating well, drinking water, getting up early, exercising, sleeping more, reading, writing, meditating, telling your kids you love them are all the things you can do for 30 days. The nuance or advanced tip here is to look for trigger habits and keystone habits. What are those things that if you could do them every day 
would have a domino effect on the other habits in your life. I find that committing to getting up early is a great keystone habit because it keeps you from doing other things the night before that are non-value-added habits. What are those keystone habits for you? Midnight snacking, watching TV until midnight? What one or two things can you focus on for 30 days that will positively impact the rest of your life? Pick one. Do it for 30 days. So what can you expect in a 30-day project, and how can you survive the bumps? Well, as we walk through it, the first couple days, you should have no problem executing your 30-day daily plans. Just allocate a set amount of time for that thing that you've committed to do, and in the first couple days, you have the excitement and the momentum of a new project. However, as you near the end of your first week, depending on the habit that you're dealing with, things will start to get hard. You've lost your early on excitement and momentum, your body will fight back, your brain will come up with a thousand reasons why what you're doing is stupid and it would be okay to just skip this one day, right? This is where you have to have courage and strength to stick to the plan. Don't overthink it, just do it one day at a time. And that period from 7 to 14 days may be a new slice of hell for you. You've totally lost the momentum of the project, and you are exhausted from your body, your mind, even your community trying to derail your commitment to the project, but it's only 30 days. Stay with it, one day at a time. What if you fall off the wagon? If you miss a day or something goes wrong, give yourself a break. Actually, make a contract with yourself ahead of time for this contingency. Make a commitment that if you stumble, You'll forgive yourself, you'll get up, you'll keep going. Otherwise, a stumble can be fatal to your 30-day project. One of the things that will help you stay on track is to have accountability. When I go on a 30-day clean eating project, I contract my nutrition coach, Rachel, to watch over my shoulder. Since I know someone is watching, I am far less likely to cheat. Commit to a blog post a day or a video post a day even if no one is watching. You know you have to report in, and that can keep you in line and moving forward. And here's the good news. Once you get past those two weeks, it gets easier. You are through the normalization process, and your body and your mind will have figured out a new habit, a new way of being. And depending on the type of 30-day initiative, you are starting to see some substantial results at this point, and that is a great positive motivator. You've got momentum now, baby. You can still get tripped up, but there isn't that incessant feeling of being out of sorts that dogs you for the first couple weeks. You've normalized the habit, and the end is in sight. You can do it now. It's all downhill from here. So your 30 days are up. What happens now? Well, many people just keep going. I've seen running streaks start this way. The new habit you have cultivated may have taken root, and you can just declare success and keep doing it. The caution here is that with some things like bad habits, bad food, cigarettes, alcohol, you can drop right back into the bad habits pretty quickly. You can get right back on that horse, and it doesn't take 30 days. 
I'll leave that up to you. You know what those things are for you, and you'll have to figure out how to keep the ground you've won in the 30 days. A great way to push forward is to use the success of your 30-day project to launch your next 30-day project. Maybe it's editing that book you just wrote a draft of. You now know you have the power to change things. What's the next thing on your list you want to change or accomplish or bring into your life? I don't know about you, but my list is infinitely long. There is always the next thing. If the project didn't go so well, you can look back on what you learned and use that to launch the next iteration. As the gurus say, there's no such thing as failure, only learning experiences. So if you look at it that way, the sky's the limit for your next 30-day project on the calendar. I think the most important takeaway for me in these 30-day project is that it makes these initiatives into games. These are games that I can play and games that I can win, and I love that. What are you working on for the next 30 days? What can you learn? What can you play at? Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my peaceful, mindful friends, you have mindfully sat and watched your body's breath through the end of episode 4-347 of the Run Run Live podcast. Om, Om Padnima. Yeah, rock solid. Good job. I'm rolling off the long weekend and heading down to Atlanta to work. I was out in Chicago on holidays for a long weekend. And in my career, I've been there many times, so it was fun to go as a tourist. I got up every morning and went out to run around the lakefront and Grant Park. Two out of the three days, it poured on me in the morning, but that was okay. I just took my shirt off and enjoyed myself. I did a two-hour and 20-minute long run Sunday morning, and the path was packed with Chicago Marathon aspirants and club runners. The triathletes were swimming their workouts in the lake, and it just so happened that the Chicago Triathlon was also going on over at Grant Park that day, and there was a constant stream of bicycles on Lakeshore Drive the whole time I was out running. We took the architecture tour up the river one night, went out to Second City on another night, caught a Cubs game another night, walked through the Chicago Institute of Art one day as well. Like I said, it poured rain, but only while I was out running. <laughs> I'll share one image with you. Monday morning, I was out running a fartlek run. I got up around 6 o'clock local time ran down the river trail, crossed over the Lakeshore Drive Bridge, ran out to the end of Navy Pier and circled around to head north on the Lakeshore Path. And it was early, overcast and humid. The sun was up and it hadn't started to rain yet. The lake was calm and the triathletes were cruising in the shallows parallel to the shore, making little waves here and there. And there are some sections of beach and some sections of concrete along here as the path winds around the coves and the points. And I passed the remnants of a beach volleyball tournament that was being disassembled. Not too many runners were out. Bicyclists were making their way inbound into the city. Early morning maintenance crews were picking up trash and putting things away and readying the day's projects. And at one point I ran along the cement wall 
and I could look down and see into the water of Lake Michigan. And it was clear enough for me to see the sandy bottom and the seaweed. And I had to stop because there was a three to five pound bass just sitting there going about its business, immune to me and my strivings. And I had to watch it for a while. A few minutes later, as I pushed north, throwing in occasional two-minute surges, the heavens opened up with a warm downpour. And this broke the humidity and washed the sweat from my body. And my shoes squished along as I weaved around the deeper puddles. Another good morning in the Windy City. To quote the famous philosopher Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. Next up for me is the Wapak Trail 18 miler. This weekend, I'm going to just try to have fun, enjoy myself. If I can get in under four hours and not hurt myself, that will be great. After that, I have that Spartan race in a couple of weekends. I'm going to take my daughter, Teresa, up with me and spend the night. My beast race is on Saturday, and she's going to do the sprint version on Sunday. So Coach wanted me to skip it and focus on the Portland Marathon in October. Uh, If I stay on my nutrition plan and manage to squeeze in some training and stay healthy, I could do well out there. But I'm not worried about it, though. I think my days of overwrought expectations are over. And speaking of overwrought expectations, on one of the planes on the way to Chicago, a lady next to me was reading Fast Girl, the Susie Favor Hamilton story. So I asked if it was any good, and she said she was done with it and gave it to me. So I took it and read it over the next couple days. And I'll see if I can't write up a full review, but I'm still processing it. Susie was a contemporary of mine. We're about the same age. I remember her on the cover of that running magazine back in the 90s. And she was fast and pretty, and the media loved her. And she made three Olympic teams in the 1500, but she mentally imploded in all of the finals. And it turns out she's bipolar and has been struggling with mental illness her whole life. And the final manifestation of that mental illness was her becoming a high-paid escort in Las Vegas. And apparently she brought the same enthusiasm to that as she brought to everything else. But that's one of the symptoms of being bipolar. And I follow Susie on Facebook, and she's a genuinely likable person. I'm still processing her story because there's so much intertwined here with the competition, the mental illness, and yes, the sex. And it's a complicated mess for her and her family. And I'm glad that these types of illnesses have less of a stigma now than they did, but it's still a complicated mess. It makes you wonder when your mind is capable of such deception and complexity in the extreme, how much of what's going on in your head is real. And how much of it actually matters. The human mind is a complex and sometimes deceptive intelligence. And we should all be careful to remember that. I'll leave you to think on that as you ping pong around on the inside of your own overly complicated homo sapien skull bone. How much does any of that noise really matter? Everyone thinks they're the center of the universe. We worry about what others think. We worry about being good enough, rich enough, smart enough, strong enough. 
we create or allow that complex human brain to create stories and chaos. You don't have to create that chaos. All that noise is inside your own head. And you and I, if we want to, we can quiet it. Maybe you think you're alone in the world with your demons, but you're not. We're in this together, my friends. So quiet your mind. Get some help if you need to. You're not alone. You've got us. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. All right, let's see how we do here in this lovely, lovely hotel room. Got my coffee, got my bananas. Just ran for an hour. Ready to record. Um, all right, here we go. Let me find the right file. It all begins with a file. Let me increase the font size. Yes, let me do that. Hello, my friends, and welcome. Without fully developed disposable thumbs? <laughs> disposable. <laughs> That's funny. That's super funny. That's super funny. Back that up.